Uh, I think some of the more fascinating moments in Jesus' life and his public ministry um, were when people would ask him questions. You know, he was just out in these towns in Galilee and he's teaching and, and people are crowding around him and, and people would ask him questions. Um, and, and the questions they asked were interesting and they would often reveal kind of where that person is. That, you know, the type of question they chose to ask. And Jesus' answers were surprising, and they were often um, kind of offbeat, not what you would expect. Sometimes Jesus did not answer their questions. Uh, sometimes uh, he answered a question they didn't ask. Uh, sometimes uh, he would focus on, like, their motives for asking the question. And then at other times, he suggested they should be asking a different question. And it's just very interesting to watch the way he would engage with people. And in Matthew 22, there's this really brief exchange I want to look at with you um, where a religious leader, a, a, a scholar of the Old Testament, came up to Jesus and asked him a very important question. And Jesus answered in an uncharacteristically straightforward way. And so I want to look at that with you for just a moment. It's Matthew 22 starting in verse 36. Um, it says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, in the first century, in the time of Jesus' life, to say the law and the prophets was shorthand for basically the whole Bible at that point, what we think of as the Old Testament. So Jesus' answer was basically saying, if you want to distill it all down, the, the entire Old Testament scriptures, everything Jesus, or God has taught uh, his people up until the time of Christ, if you want the Cliff's Notes version of it all, Jesus says, love God and love others. That, that's, really, that's really it. It, that's a simple statement, uh, but it's not a simple task. Uh, what does it mean to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind? What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? You could spend a lifetime reflecting on what that means and how to live it out. In fact, <laughs> that's the very thing we're called to do. Um, but I think one of the challenging aspects for us when we hear statements like this that Jesus made is, is we kind of steer our energy when we hear this into thinking about what we should do, like our actions, right? Okay, how can I love God more? How can I love others more? I'm going to be super loving to people now. I'm going to try hard at this. And um, it, it's good to think about that and to want to, to love the Lord and love others and pray through, you know, how can I live this out? That's good. And, and we're called to do that. But what if there's a deeper purpose to what Jesus said there? beyond just sort of behavior modification? What if he was communicating something more than that? What if it was less about our striving to be loving people and more about who God is and where he's leading us? So as we wrap up this series, we've been in this series for several weeks now called Life That's Truly Life. Uh, we're going to reflect today on what God means when he says love. Um, and we're going to talk about what, how that affects our current life and how it points to what God has in the future for us. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, uh, to 1 Corinthians 13. 
Um, if you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, uh, here's a diagram. First Corinthians is um, in the New Testament. It's right after the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles on the tables. Feel free to take one of those home. We would love for that to be our gift to you. Uh, though, as always, we'll have the Scripture on the screens as well. Uh, so you can follow along up there. But if you want to mark those Bibles up, I mean, go for it. We've got highlighters and pens and stuff in the baskets. Um, so Jesus said, love God and love others. 1 Corinthians 13 is going for us to be a lens to help us understand what God means by love. Um, and it's, it's a very powerful chapter. Um, the church in Corinth... 1 Corinthians is a letter. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to this church. And that church was experiencing divisions and factions, confusions about how to live their life of faith. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is essentially encouraging these early Christians to love each other as Christ loved them. That's the, the, the basic layout of what he's going to say. Love each other as Christ has loved you. Um, I mean, we just sang about that, right? How he loves us. Paul was essentially saying in 1 Corinthians 13, like, think about how Jesus has loved us, and that should affect the way you relate to others and how you love others. Um, And so we're going to look at this. And uh, there's a word, this Christ-like love that that we are called to demonstrate in our lives. There's a word for it in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. It was the New Testament. It was a a word that, um, you know, Jesus used... Uh, related to when he would describe love, and it's the, the favorite word that we translate as love in the New Testament, and it's agape. Y'all say that with me. Agape. It's a Greek word. There were several words for love in Greek, but, but this word was the word that became the word for love in the New Testament. Um, and it's really interesting. It, it's, it's used over 150 times in the New Testament. And in the broader culture of the first century world, that word wasn't a very powerful word. It meant just kind of like, you know, kind of a warm regard for somebody else. But when Christians got a hold of it, they poured meaning into this word. They repurposed this word to mean a self-sacrificing, others-oriented love. Basically, how did Jesus love us? That's what we're going to mean by agape. And Jesus loved us in a self-sacrificing way and in others-oriented way, meaning he put others first. So the early Christians repurposed this word, agape, and it became a word that meant to, it was meant to encompass the fullness of how Jesus loves us and therefore how we should love others. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 13, what we're going to get is a beautiful description of this word, agape, Christ-like love. It's used 10 times in this passage. So let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So we know from the letter, 1 Corinthians, that what was happening in this church is the Corinthian Christians were arguing a lot. 
They were competing with each other about who's got the better spiritual gift, who's the better leader in the church, who's got the important roles in the church. Honestly, it's amazing how contemporary some of their struggles are with struggles in the church today at large. Um, and Paul's trying to bring them back into some perspective. He's, he's saying, look, you can have all the spiritual blessings in the world. You can be the most charitable person ever. But if you don't have love, if you don't have agape, you're completely missing the point. You're missing the point. In fact, he says it three times, this phrase. I'll highlight them. He says, uh, but do not have love. He says that three times in there. You can have all these things that you think are important and spiritual and, and significant, but if you don't have love, this agape, self-sacrificing, others-oriented love, um, you're missing it. If you don't experience it from Christ and if you don't reflect that towards others, um, you're a social symbol crash, he says. It's a powerful metaphor. You're an ear-splitting noise, relationally speaking, is what he says there. Um, if you love Jesus, say you love Jesus, but never reflect that kind of love, agape love, towards others, especially with people you don't like or agree with, you're not really acting as an ambassador of Christ. You're nails on a chalkboard. It's challenging. I would, <laughs> this is not a scientific uh, number, but I would venture to say 95% or more of kind of arguing online, symbol crashes in the way that Paul says. Because I would say 95% of them are not born out of any sense of an agape type of love for somebody, of thinking of them first, self-sacrificing. It's not born out of that. In fact, I would argue much of the public voice of the church right now, particularly in our culture, uh, does not seem to be very governed by agape love. Um, if it were, I think people who are not Christians would say, wow, they are just the most loving people. And that is a, that is a comment that is conspicuously absent in our culture. Um, and and Paul, so Paul's challenge to them is his challenge to us. Christ-like, sacrificial, agape love is the heart of our faith. It is the most important thing in our spiritual life, our experience of it from Christ and our reflecting of it to others. It is an indicator of where our heart really is. Let's keep reading. Paul's going to begin to unfold how agape love looks in real life. It's a very poetic passage that we're about to look at because you know what he does? He's going to personify agape love. And he's going to say if, if agape was a person, you know, how would she act? How would he act? That's what he's going to say. Um, now, this is a very famous portion that I'm about to read. Uh, so in order to kind of jar us out of like, yeah, yeah, I know this passage, um, and hear it with fresh ears, I'm actually going to say the word agape instead of love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Agape is patient. Agape is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. 
it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's a rich few verses. Let's unfold some of what Paul was getting at there. He starts, he says, love is patient and it's kind. I would highlight those two words. This is kind of his opening uh, thesis, a little bit of, of how this looks. It's two affirmative statements about how agape behaves. So a person living out Christ-like, self-sacrificing, others-oriented love will be patient in kind. One is reactive, one is proactive. Patience is reactive. How do you respond to others? Kindness is proactive. How are you going out of your way to deliberately interact with others? It's a great starting point to defining love. There's a, there's a reactive part and a proactive part. It's patient and it's kind. My, my suspicion is that most of us in this room would probably say we're good at one or the other or better at one than the other. You know, maybe, we're, maybe you're a patient person, um, but you miss opportunities to go out of your way to be proactively kind and help people and show them the love of Christ. Or maybe that's who you are. You serve, you help people, you love that, but your you know, patience is not your strong suit. Um, I've gone through seasons where I feel like I'm good at one or the other. Uh, but he, he's saying it's both. Patience and kindness are both part of the equation. Um, we're supposed to be Christ-like in both our reactions and our deliberate interactions with others. Next, Paul goes into a list of things. So he said those two affirmative things. Uh, love is like this. But then it now goes into a list of things that agape does not do. Um, and we can assume this list is probably based on how the Corinthians were acting. Um, they were not loving each other well. Uh, and, and so they and us were probably, probably envying, boasting, prideful, dishonoring each other, being self-seeking, easily angered, keeping records of wrongdoings, and so on. And Paul's saying, Christ-like love, agape, does not behave in that way. <laughs> That's not what it's like. So then Paul switches back to the affirmative, and he says, love rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I love that. Highlight, if you're taking notes, those four instances of always. It's right there in sequence. And again, like I think one of our tendencies in our spiritual life is we read things and we instantly, effortlessly think, okay, what do I do? How do I act like this? How do I, you know, what's the takeaway for tomorrow? And, and so it, there's a tendency to read that list and be like, okay, I'm going to always protect people. I'm going to like always trust. I'm going to work hard to always hope, and I'll just try to persevere. And so we kind of put this burden on ourselves. We read that list and think, I have to always act like that. And if, I, if I'm not acting like that all the time, then I'm not a loving person. Well, it's impossible to act like that all the time. <laughs> so how can we be this way always? I mean, we can't be Jesus so what's Paul getting at? I, I think it's something deeper. I don't think he's just saying you should act these ways always. I think 
he's getting at something deeper and he's cluing us into where he's headed. Not that we are always supposed to act in that way as if that's even possible, but that love itself will always exist. It will always persevere. And he's going to unfold what he means by that in the next few verses. Um, and we'll, we'll read these and finish out this chapter. Um, this is where it gets really good. It gets kind of dense. This is the less famous part of this chapter, but it gives meaning to everything we've read so far. So let's look at uh, starting in verse 8. Paul says, Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. He's talking about spiritual gifts there. Verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So let's talk about what he's saying here. Um, Highlight that first phrase, love never fails. Agape, never fails. Christ-like love never fails. Uh, I love in the original Greek language Paul's writing it. You know what it literally says? It says, love is not falling down, which is just an amazing image. It goes with his personifying of love. Uh, Love is patient and kind. Love is not falling down. It's not tripping. It keeps going. And, and then Paul's talking about these spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge. And he's, he's basically saying, All of these spiritual experiences and gifts and roles and everything that's occupying your attention now in the church is one day going to be no more. Because we won't need them in eternal life in the way that we do now. And the key is verse 10. Look what he says. I would highlight this. He says, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Completeness could be translated as maturity or perfection. The things we're seeing in part now in this life in a fragmented way will disappear because when completeness comes, we will see fully. Paul's saying our view of God and our view of our lives now is is, is partial. One day in the resurrection life, eternal life, that partial picture will be replaced with the full true picture of who God is. And then he gives two analogies to illustrate this point. He says, you know, when I was a kid, I thought like a kid. You know, I reasoned like a kid, but I grew up, and I, I reason like an adult now. And, and he's using that as an analogy to say that our life in Christ now is like a spiritual childhood compared to spiritual adulthood, which will come in eternity. And then he uses a second analogy of the mirror. He says, uh, and I would highlight this, he says, uh, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Now, the significance of what he said there, I believe, is lost on us because of modern mirrors. You know, we, when we look at a mirror, it's glass. It's an it's a incredibly accurate reflection of what we actually look like. Not so in Paul's day. In the ancient world, they didn't have glass mirrors the way that we do. They just had a shiny metal object, like a bronze mirror, and they would just polish it and see the reflection in that. In fact, here's a, 
uh, an ancient Greek mirror from the 5th century B.C. It's just bronze. It was just polished bronze. So they're just looking at metal. And so Paul's analogy of, like, our spiritual life now is like looking in a mirror. He's talking about that kind of mirror. So what he means is, you know, if an ancient person, a person in the New Testament world looks at the reflection, uh, it's distorted, it's blurry, it's bent a little bit, it's smudged, it does not show the finer details. Um, it's a dull impression rather than, you know, a crystal clear reflection. And, and it's kind of like if you've ever seen your reflection in like silverware or, a, you know, a metal cup or, you know, a, a car or something like that. It's not, it's not really a, a clear representation. And um, what Paul is saying is, you know, if you've ever felt like you, you have a sense of who God is, um, but you feel like he's a little bit of a mystery to you or you wish you could see him a little more clearly, like that is the reality we live in now on this side of eternity. Um, but as you grow in Christ, the image of God becomes clearer and clearer and really comes into focus in the resurrection life. What we know now of God is nothing compared to what it will be like to experience his perfect presence in eternity. Um, now, don't get me wrong. We know a lot about God. I mean, Jesus came to be observable and to see Christ is to see God. But what Paul's telling us is even our best glimpses of God in this life are a pale elementary impression of the reality. One day we will experience the glorious reality of seeing God face to face as clear as anything we've ever seen. And our view of him and our view of ourselves will dramatically sharpen. What we know now is in part, but one day we will know fully. And I think all of this is building toward what Paul said in the final verse. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I would highlight that. The greatest of these is love. What Paul's getting at is like of all the spiritual experiences that we have, spiritual gifts, roles in the church, um, you know, just the experiences we have as we follow Christ, um, faith, hope, and love rise to the surface. Faith, because that's our trust in God. That's the basis of our relationship with him. Hope, because that's where our trust is pointed. It's God's promise, what's, what's awaiting us in the future. Um, so, so faith and hope are really important. But love is the greatest quality. Why? Because it lasts forever. In eternal life, we won't need to have faith in God in the way that we do now because we'll be with him. He will just be there. In eternal life, we won't need to hope in the promised future that Christ promises us because we'll be living in that promised future. So faith and hope as we experience them now will be obsolete because we will be living eternal resurrection life in the presence of God no pain, no distance from God, but love will be there because God is love. So love will never become obsolete or irrelevant or outdated or archaic. God is love. So the experience of Christ-like love now is something that lasts forever. This is why Paul says love never fails. It always perseveres. Love is eternal because God is eternal. 
In fact, the biblical picture of eternal life is that we will forever explore the immeasurable depths of God's love. Because his love not only lasts forever in terms of time, it is also infinitely deep. And we will find in the resurrection life that there is no bottom to the well of God's love. If you want to use Paul's analogy of the mirror in eternal life of seeing God clearly for who he is, it's a mirror that will sharpen forever. More and more, more and more, more and more. And this is Paul's point. Love is something God offers us now because of Christ, through Christ, and he calls us to express that love back to him and to others. Because when we do, we are engaged in something of eternal value. It's as if we're standing on the threshold between this life and the next. And we're experiencing a taste of heaven now. I mean, think about the times in your life when you've been loved best by the people in your world. Someone who's put you first. Someone who is there for you, who sacrificed for you, who encouraged you. It cost them something to love you and take care of you and be there for you. I mean, that just means so much to us, doesn't it? When someone loves us in that way. The reason it means so much is it is a glimpse of eternal life. It is a glimpse of the life awaiting us. It is a taste of this Christ-like love. Even if it's imperfectly expressed, it is a glimpse of our promised future. It's a glimmer of God's kingdom. It, It is eternal life trespassing into this life and beckoning us home. So, Back to what Jesus said, what we looked at the beginning. When Jesus said, love God and love others, he wasn't merely telling us how to act. That, That wasn't the fullness of what he meant by that. He was inviting us to experience a preview of what he has for us, of what awaits us. He was inviting us to experience just a moment, a fragment of eternal life. If eternal life... uh. If the resurrection life is the entree, our experience of agape love in this life is the appetizer. And God invites us to savor it, to enjoy it, to offer it generously to others, to enjoy a taste of what he's preparing for us. Christ-like love, agape, offered to us by others and extended by us to others, is a spiritual experience that will never be trivial, it will never be routine, it will never be unimportant. As one biblical commentator put it, love is the only perfect and eternal way to worship God. Love never fails. It always perseveres. Love is not falling down. 